you have your copy of Scripture, we're going to be in Nehemiah chapter 9 this morning. In a few minutes, we'll go to the Lord in prayer after we look at Nehemiah 9, 16 through 31. One of my absolute favorite hymns in the Baptist hymnal is hymn number 15. Come thou fount of every blessing. And one of the reasons I I love this song is because it is a theologically rich song. And it speaks profound truths about who we are. In the third verse we have this line. Prone to wander, Lord I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. Here's my heart, Lord, take and seal it. Seal it for thy courts above. And I feel that line is a perfect description of our life as followers of Jesus Christ. That you and I, if we know Christ even as our Savior, we are prone to wander. And as such was the case for the Israelite people. Two fellows opened a butcher shop and prospered then an evangelist came to town one of the butchers was saved he tried to persuade his partner to accept salvation also but to no avail why won't you charlie asked the born-again fellow listen lester the other butcher said if i get religion too who's going to weigh the meat Sorry, my jokes just fall flat so often. (laughs) Now here's the thing. We begin the Christian life through repentance and faith, and we continue in the Christian life through repentance and faith. Very simply, if you have not, or if if we have not repented of our sins, then we have not truly believed in Jesus Christ in a saving way. God's Word tells us in Colossians chapter 2, verse 6, Therefore, as you receive Christ Jesus... The Lord, so walk in Him. So since we have received Him through repentance and faith, that means that we must also walk with Him through ongoing repentance and ongoing faith. In reality, we can't separate Nehemiah 9 from Nehemiah chapter 8, where the people heard the word and wept in repentance as they realize the seriousness of their sin. Now as we continue to read this prayer in Nehemiah chapter 9, we understand it is full of rich instruction about who God is, about who we are, and how God has worked on the behalf of His people, which should lead us to praise Him. And now what we'll see in these verses this morning is that Israel is indeed prone to sin, but God is rich in mercy. And we will see this over and over again in these verses. And so if you are willing this morning and able, I would ask that you stand out of respect for God's word as we read Nehemiah chapter 9, verses 16 through 31. I'll be reading from the English Standard Version this morning. But they... And our fathers acted presumptuously and stiffened their neck and did not obey your commands. 
They refused to obey and were not mindful of the wonders that you performed among them, but they stiffened their neck and appointed a leader to return to their slavery in Egypt. But you are a God ready to forgive, gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and did not forsake them. Even when they had made themselves a golden calf and said, this is your God who brought you up out of Egypt and had committed great blasphemies. You in your great mercies did not forsake them in the wilderness, the pillar of cloud to lead them in the way that did not depart from them day by day, nor the pillar of fire by night to light for them the way by which they should go. You gave your good spirit to instruct them and did not withhold your manna from their mouth and gave them water for their thirst. Forty years you sustained them in the, in the wilderness and they lacked nothing. Their clothes did not wear out, and their feet did not swell. And you gave them kingdoms and peoples that allotted to them every corner. So they took possession of the land of Sion, king of Heshbon, and the land of Og, king of Bashan. You multiplied their children as the stars of heaven, and you brought them into the land that you had told their fathers to enter and possess. And so the descendants went in and possessed the land. And you subdued before them the inhabitants of the land, the Canaanites, and gave them into their hand with their kings and their peoples of the land, that they might do with them as they would. And they captured fortified cities and a rich land, and took possession of houses full of all goods, cisterns already hewn, vineyards, olive orchards, and fruit trees in abundance. And so they ate and were filled and became fat, and delighted themselves in your great goodness. Nevertheless, they were disobedient and rebelled against you and cast your law behind their back and killed your prophets who had warned them in order to turn them back to you. And they committed great blasphemies. Therefore, you gave them into the hand of their enemies who made them suffer. And in the time of their suffering, they cried out to you and you heard them from heaven. And according to your great mercies, you gave them saviors who saved them from the hand of the enemies. But after they had rest, they did evil again before you, and you abandoned them to the hand of their enemies, so that they had dominion over them. Yet when they turned and cried to you, you heard from heaven, and many times you delivered them according to your mercies, and you warned them in order to turn them back to your law. Yet they acted presumptuously and did not obey your commandments, but sinned against your rules, which if a person does them, he shall live by them. And they turned a stubborn shoulder and stiffened their neck and would not obey. Many years you bore with them and warned them by your spirit through your prophets, yet they would not give ear. Therefore you gave them into the hand of the peoples of the lands. Nevertheless, in your great mercies, you did not make an end of them or forsake them, for you are a gracious and merciful God. Let's pray. Father. You indeed are a gracious and merciful God. Even when we are prone to wander far away from you. Oh Lord, may you speak through your word this morning. May our hearts receive it. If we need to be broken this morning, break us. If we need 
to understand your mercy and grace this morning. I pray that we would understand it. I pray this in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. You may be seated. Some people by their nature tend to be more introspective and conscientious, always always lamenting over their imperfections and sins, while others can commit serious sins with hardly even a twinge in their conscience. And they'll shrug it off as, well, we are under grace. If you're the gloomy type, then perhaps you need to spend some time in the book of Romans chapter 8, which asks, who will bring a charge against God's elect? God is the one who justifies. Who is the one who condemns? There is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. However, if you are more of the type who shrugs sin off, then you probably need to spend some time in passages like Nehemiah chapter 9, which confesses both personal and corporate sins. So let's dive into this passage this morning. The first thing I want us to see this morning is this, that the people, they were repeatedly prideful. They were repeatedly prideful. So we do not need to read these verses long to quickly notice the pride that we find in Israel's heart. In fact, we see that they are stiff-necked and prideful. After all that God has done, they dealt arrogantly. That is what it means when it says that they acted presumptuously and they became stiff-necked against God. It is real easy to read this account of Israel's repeated sin over and over again in the face of God's abundant mercy and think to ourselves, how could those Jewish people be so ungrateful? How could they be so arrogant and how could they be so stiff-necked? It's also easy to read this passage of Scripture and think, how, can, how, how is it that someone else can be so prone to sin? How can my neighbor be so sinful? Or how about that other person in church? How can they be so sinful? They read the Bible. They go to church. What's wrong with them? And we fail to apply this to our own life. Can I challenge you this morning to read this and realize that we're looking in the mirror? This passage of Scripture describes the propensity of our heart that we're prone to wander. Lord, I feel it, prone to leave the God I love. The whole metaphor of a stiff neck is repeated in verse 17 when speaking uh, to the Jews in Acts 7, Stephen said something similar when he said, you stiff neck people uncircumcised in the heart and ears, you always resist the Holy Spirit as your fathers did, so do you in Acts 7, 51. The Jews boasted of their special relationship with God, but Stephen points out that they were full of pride. That in reality, they had no relationship with God. God used the term stiff neck as a descriptor of his people as they wandered around in the wilderness. And the Lord said to Moses, I have seen this people and behold, it is a stiff necked people. Exodus 32.9. The word stiff necked is used to describe someone 
who's stubborn. Someone that is filled with arrogance and pride and they refuse to obey God. These people continue in their sin until the judgment of God falls on them. He who is often reproved yet stiffens his neck will suddenly be broken beyond healing, Proverbs 29.1 says. The whole language is taken from a stubborn mule or ox that turns away from and stiffens his neck to rebel against the guidance of the yoke. The point is that Israel is acting like a stubborn mule or the golden calf that they worshipped at one point. And they will be treated like that. It is applied to all who resist the word of God. They will suddenly be destroyed. Their judgment will be sudden. It will come quickly and without further notice. It will come without remedy. Do you think that, that just because God is full of grace, that God never punishes sin? Church, we must check our hearts and make sure that we're not guilty of stubborn pride and willful disobedience even in our own life. Pride will always cause people to reject the word of God and live rebelliously. They'll say, well, that, that word doesn't apply to me or let me tell you what I think as opposed to what God's word says. The blackness of our sin stands out against the brightness of the glory of God. Next notice that they refused God's principles. They refused God's principles. Not only did they stiffen their neck, but they did not obey God's commands. If we refuse to obey God's commands, in other words, if we refuse to hear and obey his word, then we shouldn't expect his help. God gave the Israelites clear commands. He instructed them to believe and obey, but they did not obey. And so they heard God's commands, but over and over again, they said, nah, we're not going to obey it. That's like reading God's word and seeing what you're supposed to do and not obeying it. Or that's like coming into church and hearing a sermon and walking out and saying, nah, that's not for me. I'm not going to obey that. Now, please understand, loving and keeping God's commandments is one of the evidences of our salvation. Jesus said, why do you call me Lord, Lord, and not do what I say in Luke chapter 6, verse 46? And he said, if you love me, you will do what? Obey my commandments. John 14, 15. Later, the apostle John says the very same thing. For this is the love of God that we keep his commandments and his commandments are not burdensome. 1 John 5, 3. We are living in a time when God's word is not loved and it is not obeyed. By the very people who say they're Christians. They say, well, I belong to Christ, but they don't want to love God's word nor obey God's word. They, do, they detour around God's word. They discount God's word. They dodge God's word. They disrespect God's word. And they delete it from their life at every turn. It's amazing how many professing believers know what is right and wrong, but they make every attempt that they can to, to get around the truth so that they can do their own thing. Because they don't want to live by God's word. 
People who try to avoid or get around what God says in his word will find in the long run it doesn't work out so well for them. They, de they, they desire to live the way they want instead of how God wants them to live. And that's a recipe for failure. We must not refuse God's principles. What we read and hear in his word is what we must obey in his word. Not make up reasons to not obey. God's word. They refused God's principles. Then we see that they made rebellion a priority. They made rebellion a priority. Verse 17 tells us that they stiffened their neck and they appointed a leader to return to their slavery. The people detested what God was doing for them and threw it back in God's face. Moses was handpicked by God to deliver the people out of Egypt and to the promised land. Nehemiah chapter 9 verse 17 is a reference to what Moses said in Numbers 14, 4. And they said to one another, let us choose a leader and go back to Egypt. So that we understand really what's going on here. The people didn't like the man that God chose to lead them. They said, we, we don't like Moses leading us. Why didn't they like Moses leading them? Well, because Moses was set on obeying and following God. They didn't like that. God frees them from slavery. And then they say, we don't like this freedom. We want to be slaves again. And it's, it's mind-blowing to stop and think about it. They had a complete lack of faith. And their lack of faith was a basis for their fear and their rebellion. They didn't care what God's will was. They didn't bother to stop and think, what is God's will in this, this situation? They wanted to ditch Moses and find a man of their own choosing in order to lead them back into slavery. Furthermore, they wanted him, they wanted him to lead them right back to Egypt. Understand what they're saying. Living in bondage was better than living in God's will. That's what they're saying. Now, before we get too quick to judge them, because, because we can do that, well, what a bunch of goofballs. Don't you wonder how often we do the exact same thing? We live our life in bondage, bondage to sin. Acting like living our life in bondage is better than living in God's will. We do the exact same thing. I, I want to do it my way. I want to do things the way I want to do them. I don't care what God's word says. Fourthly, notice this. They realized God is patient. They realized God is patient. The patience of God is one of his tremendous attributes. Often we might be tempted to think how God could be so patient and long-suffering with these Israelite people. And then we have to remember just how patient God is with us. Apart from the mercy of God to rescue us, we're doomed. In the last part of verse 17, we're given a combination of six statements used that expresses God's love and his patience. First, Notice that God forgives. But you are a God ready to forgive. 
God stands ready to forgive his people for the errors of their way. What an amazing truth that the holy God of this universe would forgive such unholy people. Back in the wilderness, they had angered God at every single turn. Their unbelief was an insult to God. And it was Moses who prayed that God would pardon the people and God pardoned them. Please pardon the iniquity of this people, he prays. According to the greatness of your steadfast love, just as you have forgiven this people from Egypt until now. And then the Lord said, I have pardon according to your word. Numbers 14, 19 to 20. God answers Moses' prayer and he stays his judgment on the people. Notice it was not the sinful people that prayed. It was their leader. The people were not concerned with God. They weren't concerned with what God wanted for them. They were busy doing their own thing. Moses knew the consequence of their rebellion and he sought God on their behalf and God spared them. And sometimes I I sit and I wonder how many people there are today who think that they're getting away with their sin and their life, but they're only reaping the benefits of someone else's prayer. Next notice that God shows favor. God shows favor. We read that God is gracious and grace is God's unmerited favor upon the undeserving. There's no such thing as deserved grace or it's not grace. Biblically speaking, grace is undeserved and unmerited. Here God is said to be gracious, which means to exercise grace. Listen to God's word from Romans. Romans 5.20 But where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. That word abounded means to surpass by far, exceeding immeasurably, overflow beyond. What a wonderful truth that God's grace reaches beyond our sin. No matter how far sin takes us, God's grace reaches further still. His grace is inexhaustible. You cannot use up the grace of God. Charles Spurgeon said this, grace outdoes sin For it lifts us higher than the place from which we fell. It's only out of God's infinite supply of grace that you and I are ever able to live any kind of victorious life. Sin is persistent and it's powerful and it's prevailing, but it will never quench the grace of God. God does not have just enough grace, but he has more than enough grace. So not only does God show favor, not only does God forgive, but then we see God shows forbearance. We are told that God is merciful. To be merciful means that you practice mercy when dealing with others. When we stop and consider the fact that God is a holy God and we are a bunch of unholy sinners, it's really amazing that God is merciful to us at all, isn't it? Mercy is God withholding the judgment that you and I deserve. Praise be to God for the countless times that he has withheld his judgment in my life. When we fail God, it is his mercy that hangs on to us and holds us up. Next, notice that God is slow to fury. It's actually slow to anger, but I wanted it to be an F because, you know, everything else is F's. Slow to fury. God's slow to anger. In other words, when his people sin, God doesn't just immediately boil over. And destroy them. Anybody in here have a quick temper? I, I do sometimes. I've had to work greatly on my temper because it just, boom, just 
so quick. God's not that way. It doesn't say that God does, is not angry. Instead, it says that God um, is slow to anger. God is indeed angry with sin. Psalm 711 tells us that God is angry with the wicked every single day. The wrath of God is a serious matter. And those who refuse to repent will eventually be dealt with by God's wrath. With that being said, God is slow to anger. We read over and over again in His Word how He's slow to anger. The Lord is merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. Psalm 103.8 And rend your hearts and not your garments. Return to the Lord, for He is gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. Love and he relents over disaster. Joel 2.13 The Lord is gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. Psalm 145.8 Though he's angry with sin, God stays his hand of judgment and gives sinners the opportunity to repent. Next notice that God's compassion is furthered. We're told that God is abounding in steadfast love. This is the idea of loyal love and covenant loyalty. Loyal love is an unfailing kind of love. Kindness or goodness often used of, of God's love that is related to faithfulness to his covenant. We read in Titus 3, 4, and 6, But when the goodness and the loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, he saved us, not because of works, done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing and regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior. Let me just say that it is a good thing that God deals with us according to his kindness. The people of God are saved, but they're not perfect. We can all attest to that. We don't always do what is right, but God always does what is right. His love for us never diminishes. Never. That means that you can't do something that makes God love you any less. Isn't that mind-blowing? That when we go out and we mess up, God's not up in heaven going, Oh boy, I don't love him as much anymore. We think that because that's the way we work on human terms, right? So we, we sin against our brother or sister in Christ and... And sometimes they withhold love from us. That's not what God does. Even when his people fail, God continues to love with a loyal love. He's always going to do right by his people. Lastly, we notice this, that God is faithful. At the very end of verse 17, we read that God did not forsake them. They were God's people and he cared for them and was faithful towards them. The word forsake carries with it the idea of abandoning. You see, God could have just abandoned them. God could have stopped feeding them. He could have stopped leading them. He could have stopped caring for them. And he would have every right to do so. Remember, they wanted to do everything on their own terms. They were set on doing things their own way. And they wanted to do it without God. What if God would have just abandoned them and let them go and said, God, just do your own thing. They would have perished. Every single last one of them would have died. But he didn't do that. Aren't you thankful that God is committed in his relationship with his people? And if we are honest, 
we would have to say that God is far more committed to us than we are to God. After all, we are not constantly chasing after God. Instead, we're constantly chasing after and walking away from God. And yet God never forsakes us. And as we continue to read, we read in verse 18 about when Moses was up on Mount Sinai with God and the people became weary of waiting for him to return. So what do they do? They go to Aaron and they tell him, hey, make, make uh, gods to go before us, Aaron. And what does Aaron do? Aaron foolishly uh, gives in to the people and he tells them, hey, bring, bring your earrings that are in your ears and in your wives' ears and in your sons' ears and in your daughters' ears. Bring me your earrings. There's a crucial leadership lesson to be found here. A good leader takes his orders from God, not from the people. A good leader does not confuse the will of the people with the will of God. Aaron failed. When he should have stepped up and said, Stay true to what God said he was supposed to do. Instead, he compromised and capitulated to the people's demands and instructed them, hey, bring me your earrings. And then he melts them down, makes a golden calf, fashioned. And the people said, these are your gods, O Israel, who brought you out of Egypt. What a horrible act of idolatry and blatant blasphemy against the holy God of heaven. He says, look, here's, here's the gods that led you out. How terrible. And then in verse 19, God, who should have destroyed them, he didn't. Can you just imagine? Here's Aaron. Bring me your earrings. Makes the golden calf. They worship the calf. And so this is the God who led us out of Egypt. Not the God of heaven. Not the God that we've seen perform all of these miracles. This calf is the God that led us out of Egypt. And God should have destroyed them. What's he do? Mercy. God doesn't forsake his people. And it wasn't just mercy. I don't know if you caught it, but it was great mercy. After all of their unbelief, after all of their rejection, after their idolatry, after their blasphemy, after everything that they threw in the face of an almighty God, God still remains exceedingly merciful and does not forsake his people. On the very day that they worshiped that calf, the pillar of cloud still towered high above the camp to shelter these idolaters from unseen dangers. And as they lay their head down on their pillow at night, the wall of a fire still shone brightly because God is full of mercy. They didn't remember the mighty deeds of their almighty God. They didn't obey the law of God. They didn't value the message of God, but they lived in arrogant rebellion to, towards God. They deserved his punishment, his abandonment. Oh, but church, see the great mercy and grace of God. 
Because God refused to let them go. Don't you see it? If your salvation depended on you to keep it, you would surely lose it. But it's not. It's dependent on God. Who when we are faithless, he remains faithful. That's precisely the point of God's mercy. So that God will be glorified in the benefit to us is only a secondary one. Salvation is primarily not man-centered. It's God-centered. It's not mainly to make you feel good. It is primarily to make God look good. John Piper says, because many people are willing to be God-centered as long as they feel that God is man-centered, it is a subtle danger. We may think we are centering our lives on God when we are really making Him a means to self-esteem. Over and against this danger, I urge you to ponder the implications that God loves His glory more than He loves us. And this is the foundation of His love for us. Don't you understand that the whole point of your salvation and my salvation is not so that you and I will be glorified, but to exalt the God in heaven that He is glorious because I am a filthy, wretched, no good for nothing worm who turns His back on God. Every chance I get, I am prone to wander. But God in His faithfulness will not let me go. Oh, we must refuse to get caught up in this man-centered gospel of our day, thinking that salvation is all about us and primarily for man because it's primarily for God that, my dear friend, is why God remains faithful because salvation is a reflection of His glory and that's why He spares the Israelites not because they are good, but because it's a reflection of the glory of God. Not for their sake, but for His glory. Moving on, we notice that they received provision. They received provision. As we look at verse 20, we notice this provision that God made for the people. First, the provision of His Spirit to teach them. Then we notice that He gave them the fresh manna from heaven every morning and fresh water to quench their thirst. God remained faithful even when they were not to provide for their every single need, both physical and spiritual. And as we look at verse 21, we notice that for 40 years, God's providential care sustained them in the desert. The word sustains means to nourish, to be present, to make provision, to provide sustenance. They lacked for nothing. Even their clothing did not get old and their feet did not swell. I don't know how often you buy clothes, but typically I don't think we have clothes that last us 40 years. But here it says their clothes did not even wear out. 40 years. What mercy was displayed by God to a bunch of rebel hearts? In addition to all this, God gave them military victory, according to verse 22. They won battle after battle. There was no enemy that could stand against them. Not only did they receive this provision, but also notice that they relished in prosperity. Look at the beginning of verse 23. You multiplied their children 
as the stars of heaven. A reference to the promise that God made to Abraham. Children are born and God continued to multiply their numbers greatly. This was a time when children were considered a blessing from God. Sadly, we don't live in a time when children are seen nor appreciated as a gift from God. Considering on average more than 2,300 babies are killed by abortion in the United States every single day. 61% of them are surgically dismembered and 39% die from medically induced exposure. All of this is done, of course, in the name of freedom. We use, the word, we, use, we use that word freedom to kill our smallest and our weakest and our most vulnerable in the community. During this time, it was considered a blessing from God to have a large family. As we look at verses 23 and 25, we notice that God brought them into the promised land and prospered them greatly. They were victorious over the Canaanites and their kings. And I don't know about you, but I just love the last part of verse 25. Don't you love it? So they ate and were filled and became fat and delighted themselves in your great goodness. That's, that's nice. They ate and were filled and became fat. They, they had plenty. Houses were already built. Wells were already dug. Food was in abundance. All they had to do was step in and enjoy the goodness of God and get fat. The whole point is that God gave abundant provision to Israel. So God's done all of this for them. He took care of them. They were wandering in the wilderness. And then he proves, uh, provides for them in abundance. In the promised land. They're in this fertile land. They deserve none of it. You would imagine that the Israelites would respond to this. With profound, unceasing gratitude. We didn't deserve any of this. We got everything. And look, we, we can get fat. We can sit and eat and enjoy everything that God has given to us. We are so grateful, God. But they didn't respond that way. And once again, we can find ourselves ready to condemn them. And then we are forced to ask ourselves whether we actually count the blessings that God gives to us. And whether we actually recall the goodness of God in our own lives. Every opportunity of prayer that we have should begin with adoration. Acknowledgement of who God is. And then continue in thanksgiving, recognizing everything that God has done for us. Far too often, we only crave for more. Forgetting what we already have. Moving on, we see the response of Israel. Their rebellion is provoked. Verse 26, we see this sad story of a rebellious people over and over again. Even after the rich blessings from God, they were disobedient. They rebelled. They not only ignored what God had said, but they took steps to ensure that they would not have to listen to it again. It says that they cast God's law behind their backs. In other words, they turned their backs on God. The children of Israel were so obstinate and rebellious that they wanted nothing to do with God. God rescued them. God reached out to them. God restored them. Yet what do they do? They turn their back on God. They want nothing to do with him. They are indeed prone to wander. They went even further because they killed those who proclaimed God's word to them. 
All because they didn't want to hear the truth. They murdered the prophets that brought God's message to them. In an attempt to stifle the message, they killed God's messengers. The world still attempts to rid themselves of God by persecuting and slaying the messengers of God. The last part of verse 26 tells us that they committed great blasphemies. They not only used offensive speech about the Lord, but they held him in great contempt. God's moral imperative. We see it revealed, his will revealed. We must allow the Spirit of God to instruct us through his word. We must take serious the admonition that's given to us by John when he wrote, Whoever says, I know him, but does not keep his commandments is a liar and the truth is not in him. Prone to wander. Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. Oh, that we would not live a life of rebellion to the things of God, but a life of obedience. Eighthly, we notice their pattern is repeated. These remaining verses speak of the time of judges when Israel went through several cycles as God worked through them. They would repeat the pattern, being in prosperity, and then they would get arrogant and sin and commit apostasy. Apostasy, God would judge them, then they would repent, then God would forgive them and restore them. And so the pattern was just repeated over and over again. There were seven cycles of this in the book of Judges. Prosperity, arrogance, apostasy, judgment, penitence, restoration. So notice three things real quick. Their defeat. Israel was delivered into the hands of their enemies who made them suffer because their refusal to be corrected and, and continued in sin. God allowed their enemies to conquer them. This was God's punishment for their sin. They are, they are indeed times in our lives where the problems that we face are a direct result of God dealing with our sin. God simply withdrew his hand of protection from Israel and allowed their enemies to defeat them. This took place over and over again in Israel's history. They had fallen to sin. God would use the enemy to get their attention. Next notice their desperation. The people finally get enough of their sin under enemy oppression. They cry out to God. And God hears them and he delivers them. Again, it's according to his great mercy. Israel seems to have needed a crisis in order to recognize their dependence on God. So often we're the same, aren't we? We don't really realize that we need God until some crisis hits our life. Some kind of oppression comes into our life. And then suddenly we need God. God's abundant mercy is clearly seen in how he deals with his wayward children. Thirdly, notice their deliverance. Off we go again. Repeated cycle. God in his mercy delivers his people. And after they get some rest, what do they do? Evil again. When things are going well, it's easy for us to neglect our dependence on God. The last thing I want us to notice this morning is this. God is their patient redeemer. Verses 29 and 30. We have a summary of the era of kings, which covers 1 Samuel through 2 Chronicles. Tragically, Israel came, became weary of God's direct leadership. They demanded that God appoint a king to rule over them. God gave them a king, but things did not work out so well for them. Think about the downgrade. They traded God for an earthly king. They got what they wanted. 
but they lost what they had. So we're sick of God leading us. We need, we need an earthly king to lead us. I just love the opening words of verse 31. Nevertheless, in your great mercies. Let this history, sin, 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 Israel, turn their back on God, turn their back on God, turn their back on God, spit in the face of God. God, we don't need you. God, we don't want you. God, we want to go our own way. God, we don't care. God, we're rebellious. God, we're prideful. God, this. God, we can go on and on with the sin of Israel. Nevertheless, in your great mercies, the patience and love of God are emphasized over and over again. God is long-suffering and slow to anger, and he's continually working to bring his people back to him. But they withdrew over and over again because they were arrogant and a hard people. They were banking on the mercies of God, and so are we. They look at the history of their disobedience and rather than being depressed by it, they notice God's overflowing mercy towards them. I close with this this morning. Trouble still drives self-sufficient people into the arms of a loving God. When all goes well for them in life, they can do without God. He patiently waits knowing that everything will not always be well for those who arrogantly are stiff-necked. The prodigal forgot all about his father when he was feasting sumptuously. When he's surrounded by all of his friends. But when money ran out and his stomach was on empty, he thought about home. Sadly, sometimes it takes sorrow to bring people to their senses. Do you look at your life and identify with Israel this morning? Because we all should. If we actually take an honest look at our life, we will see that all of the good things that God has done for us, we will sit there and count them. Look at all the blessings God has given to me. And we will see that all we have done in return to honor God for the blessings that he's given to us is to transgress against God. Even when we don't mean to sin, we end up sinning, don't we? The only way for us to be obedient in this life is by trusting in the Lord. And the only way to be faithful is by faith. For example, we are commanded to rest on the seventh day and you have, to, you have to trust in order to get rest. You have to trust that's what you should do. You have to trust that God will provide for you when you decide to give to the church. Right? You have to trust that God will help. So you decide to be obedient. Trusting that God will use from what you have left after you give. It's all about trusting in God. If we obey God's commands... And we trust in God, we will enjoy life. But when we're disobedient, we won't. Now here's why I want you to really...
grasp this morning. Do not be discouraged by your past history of disobedience. Do not be discouraged by your past history of disobedience. You see, we can read this passage in Nehemiah chapter 9, and we can reflect on our own life and think, I am a terrible wretch. And that could be so discouraging. But this is what I want you to realize. Use that to highlight the great mercy of God in your life. Because that's what it's for. It's not for you to look back and go, oh, I was so disobedient. Don't you get it? It's for you to look back and go, what a merciful God I have that he didn't destroy me. That God in his rich mercy has shown love to me even when I did not love him. That we should be utterly destroyed. We should be brought to an end. That we should be ruined. And it should be all over for us. Oh, but the great mercy of God. For he is gracious and merciful to us. When we should be destroyed, he displays his mercy over and over and over again. And that is what you focus on this morning. That you focus on the mercy of God. It is because of the steadfast love of God that you and I are not cut off. Come thou fount of every blessing. Tune my heart to sing thy grace. Streams of mercy never ceasing. Call for songs of loudest praise. Teach me some melodious sonnet sung by flaming tongues above. Praise the mount I'm fixed upon it. Mount of God's unchanging love. Here I raise my Ebenezer. Here there by thy great help I've come. And I hope by thy good pleasure, safely to arrive at home. Jesus sought me when a stranger, wandering from the fold of God, he to rescue me from danger, interposed his precious blood. Oh, that day when freed from sinning, I shall see thy lovely face, clothed in the blood-washed linen. How I'll sing thy wondrous grace, Come, my Lord, no longer tarry. Take my ransomed soul away. Send thy angels now to carry me to realms of endless day. Oh, to grace, how great a debtor. Daily, I'm constrained to be. Let thy goodness, like a fetter, bind my wandering heart to thee. Prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. Here's my heart, Lord. Take and seal it. Seal it for thy courts above. Oh, God, thank you for your mercy. Let us pray.